Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma alamna ma anfa'na wa anfa'na bima alamtana wa zilna ilman wa amalan salihah. Allahumma taqabba minna wa afiqna ila ma tuhibbuhu wa tarda. Ya Rabbi salli wa sallam wa zil wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Bismillah. Is that loud enough? Because if it's not loud enough, then I have to lean forward and stuff, and like it just, it's okay. I think it will do, inshallah. Yeah, well, my, my mouth is old. Put <laughs> too much mileage on it. <laughs> too much talking when I should have not been talking. All right, bismillah. قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفع الله إياه بعلومه في الدارين آمين. An elucidation of the functions of the guide and the teacher. Okay, so in the last session we talked about, or I shouldn't say we talked about, Imam Al-Ghazali talked about the roles and uh, of the student in relation to the teacher. And now he's going to talk about the function of the teacher and what they're supposed to do. So he says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, know that in regard to the knowledge that every human being has acquired, there are four stages, similar to the stages of the acquisition of wealth. For the possessor of wealth, there is the state of acquisition in which he earns it. Then he accumulates it and becomes one who is self-reliant, who need not ask others, whereupon he becomes one who reaps the benefits of wealth by spending it on himself. The last stage is that of distributing wealth to others, whereupon he becomes a generous, well-intentioned benefactor. This is the loftiest stage. So he's using this example of money, that in the beginning you just work, and you don't have like any flexibility really, you just work. And then after you work and you're able to save up a little bit of money, you have a little bit of self-reliance. And when you start to develop that self-reliance, then uh, you know you can start to spend that money on yourself more than anything else. You can accumulate, then you can start to spend on yourself, then eventually you can get to the point where you can spend on others. So he says, knowledge is acquired in a way similar to wealth. It has a stage when one is striving after it and acquiring it, a stage of accumulation and self-reliance, a stage of reflection which entails contemplation of that which one has acquired and during which one takes satisfaction in it, then a stage of enlightening others, which is the loftiest of ranks. So this is a nice, nice kind of breakdown. Um, yeah. And there were certain etiquettes to this, like, you know, people usually in the, in the early parts of their life, you know, if they're students of knowledge, they spend their time studying. And if there was any sort of education that they're doing in that period, or any writing or anything that they're doing in that period, oftentimes it would be either to like abridge something that was already written or to simplify something that was already written, oftentimes as a means for them themselves to study, but other people might find benefit in it. You know, they're not like, they're staying in their lane, so to speak. And then after that, things might change as they get older and older. And even the kinds of subjects that people would write in would change with time. So they say like, uh, it's common for people to delay their work in tafsir to the later parts of their life. Because this is like the master application of everything you learned is in tafsir. 
So, you know, all the other fields that you've been working on, all of the other things you've been doing, then finally when you get old, now you can bring all of that to bear on the, the text of the Qur'an. In any case, he's saying that it has, it has stages. One who has acquired knowledge and acted upon it and imparted it to others is praised in the heavenly domains as a person of great worth. They are like the sun that sheds light on others, being thus a light unto itself. Or like a fragrant musk that imbues others with its fragrance while being fragrant unto itself. Right? So the sun, it gives light to others and it itself is illuminated, is radiant. And the musk or the fragrance itself smells good and it makes others sm smell good too. Right? Um, on the other hand, whoever imparts knowledge to others but implements nothing of it is like a notebook that provides benefit to others but is devoid of knowledge itself. Or a whetstone that sharpens other things but cuts nothing. The whetstone is that stone you use to sharpen knives. <coughs> or a needle that clothes others but remains unclothed itself. Or it is similar to the wick of a lamp that illumines, illumines for others while consuming itself in its own flame. Right, so this is like the person who they're, they're teaching and they're doing things but they're not getting any benefit from it. In whatever manner one is engaged in instruction, he has taken on a momentous task of grave consequence, so let him guard well his conduct and the role incumbent upon him. The first function of the teacher is benevolence toward his students, in such a manner that he treats them like his children. I'm taking away the, the gender-specific stuff. Uh, as you know, uh, oftentimes the gender is specific to the male side, not to exclude females, but just out of convention. Uh, but I'm changing those, so if you're reading along or something, you might notice that. The first function of the teacher is benevolence toward his students. He should behave in such a manner that he treats them like his children, or she treats them like her children. Um, the Prophet them stated, I am for all of you as a father to his son. He meant redeeming them from the fire of the abode of the hereafter, which is of greater imperative than the parents redeeming their child from the fire of this world. So the parents, they, they raise their child so that they can, be, they can do well in this world. And the Prophet ﷺ raises the people so that they can do well in the next world. So he has a similar role actually, but in, the, in, in things that are related to the hereafter. For that reason, the teacher's responsibility is more grave than that of parents. For though the father is the primary cause of the child's present existence and his ephemeral life, or, you know, both, the teacher is the primary cause behind his immortal life. Were it not for the teacher, the student would eventually divert that which the, his parents had rendered unto him into everlasting annihilation. Whereas from the teacher, they derive the benefit of everlasting life in the abode of the hereafter. I mean the teacher of the sciences of the hereafter or the sciences of this world whose purpose is the abode of the hereafter, not this ephemeral world. For learning with the intention of this world only is devastation and devastating. We seek the protection of God from such as that. Um, this is sometimes a tough one to swallow. But when you really start to think about it, you realize how true it is. Because, like, you know, some of us have great parents. Some of us have parents that are in between. Some of us have parents that don't really do such a great job. And... Um, Either way you look at it, generally speaking, people who get like really serious about religion, really serious about doing things in a certain way and so on, either way, they end up benefiting greatly from their teachers mm -hmm. in any case, right? And so 
the teacher really is the one that's that's uh, facilitating that for the person, and obviously that's a big responsibility, right? Like one of the things we see most commonly in uh, dealing with younger people is that so many of the issues that come up are related to parents and the ways that they parented and the ways that they did things and oftentimes how rough they were or abusive they were or negative they were or whatever it might be and then the consequences of that in people's lives over time imagine then the teacher you know like a lot of times you see things in the community or you see people hold positions that you're like where is this person doing this like where do they get this idea from why are they acting that way why is their perspective on islam the way that it is so on and so forth and in the end you realize like well there's no one to really blame except the people they learned from the people they learned from are actually the ones that are at fault you can be mad at the average person for any number of th positions that they hold or perspectives they have but in the end they're uh they're subject to what their teachers tell them and if their teacher teaches them to make big things out of small issues that don't really matter then they're going to do that if their teacher teaches them to be argumentative and arrogant and so on and so forth, then they're going to do that. Right? It's all going to be uh, in those type of in those type of things. So it's a very very uh, high level of responsibility, right? <coughs> Allah help us. So it's benevolence towards the students. Um, and then he has this kind of like piece about how essentially the students of a teacher should get along the way that the children of the parents should get along. Right? Like children, if, they, if they're raised good, well and the parents take care of them and so on and so forth, then in the end, of course, when you're kids and stuff, you might have some, you know, usual stuff. But eventually people grow up and they have each other's back and they care for each other and so on and so forth. And he's saying that people who are students together, they should be similar. That they're traveling on the path together, and they're going through life together. And inshallah, all of that will lead to good things in the hereafter. Right? So this is number one. Um, <coughs> so it should, uh, you know, like we should be aware of competition that's negative. We should be aware of negative competition in that regard. Um, Again, you know, some of these examples, they're really, they, they still come up on a community level, but like, so oftentimes in different ways. People aren't usually like really serious students of knowledge. They might just be kind of like hanging out and they want to be involved in this or that or whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, but they, you know, so the competition is a little bit different, but still it can happen. Like people become competitive over this or that or attention or time or whatever it is. And all of that stuff, you know, it's it's other than Allah in the end. <laughs> it's other than Allah in the end. The second function of the teacher is to follow the example of the master conveyor of the law. May the peace and blessings of God be upon him. Thank you, Dakota. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He should therefore seek no renew. So this one, you know, may Allah help us. Allahumma aghnina bi halalika an haramik. He should therefore seek no remuneration for the dissemination of knowledge, nor intend, it in en nor intend in it any recompense or gratitude. Rather, he should teach for the countenance of God, seeking only proximity to Him. He should perceive no indebtedness to Him on the part of those He teaches, although indebtedness is a necessary obligation on their part. 
Rather, he should perceive excellence as being theirs, for they have made the goal of their hearts the intimate proximity to God by sowing knowledge therein. This is similar to the person who lends you a parcel of land to plant therein and harvest its fruits for yourself. Your benefits from it are greater than those of the parcel's proprietor. How could you presume that the student should be indebted to you when your recompense in God's eyes for the instruction you impart is greater than the recompense of the student? Had it not been for the student, you would not have reco achieved this recompense at all. So basically what he's saying here is the person should follow the example of the Prophet them, which is to seek no reward for the reward for the knowledge they teach. That's the asl. That's the asl. That's the default position. Default position is the person doesn't teach seeking any reward. Uh, and of course, you know, Imam Ghazali is strict on maintaining uh, certain etiquettes for the teacher and certain etiquettes for the student. And... Um, so he takes the default position. The early Muslims, you know, many of them also took the default position. And later on they started to talk about it's permissible for the person who teaches. Like the early positions, it's impermissible for the Qur'an teacher to get paid. It's impermissible for the teacher, the one who makes adhan to get paid, the one who leads salah to get paid. All of them were unpaid positions. They're like the Mormons. <laughs> the Mormons, all their stuff is unpaid, in case you didn't know. All Whoever is the president of the stake, whatever it is. They're unpaid positions. Uh, but as kind of like things developed and grew, then there started to be positions where one could be get paid for these responsibilities such that they don't get neglected, essentially. But, you know, part of why it's important to, to, to think about the default is that... Um, there, you know, there's limits on these things. There's limits on these things. They're known by custom. They're known by what is needed for a person. Maybe in particular stages of their life, it may be different than other stages of their life, whatever it might be. But um, there are limits on it. And this is, I think, one of the great challenges that we have now is kind of like the um, consumerization and the marketization of the religious existence. So like everyone has a new product, you know, everyone has like this thing that they're teaching and that thing that they're teaching and so on and so forth. And like if you watch it for more than a few months, you recognize what you're bound to recognize, which is everyone's teaching the same thing. <laughs> like Islam is Islam. There's not like so much variation. You might have a little bit, you might have like a little bit different flavor on it. The icing might be different, but like the cake is the same cake, you know. <laughs> and so the whole thing just gets messy. And you're gonna do this and that, and and which is not to judge anyone. You don't know how we don't know how people spend their money or how they, but whatever you know. But uh, the ideal would be that this kind of stuff is arm's length away, you know. And even like uh, the non-profit sector is still better than the for-profit sector in some ways, you know. Uh, and this is one of the things we have to consider, though, in that regard is. Uh, you know, we shouldn't push people into the for-profit model, which is to say, like, if if the non-profit model actually takes care of people, then they're not going to go to the for-profit model, right? Like, most people are not in this to make a bunch of money. Oh, thank you. Stuff. <laughs> what is going on? Oh my God! Yomun Qiyamah. Sayyidna. Shouldn't be bringing me stuff. Um, 
Anyways, point is value. <laughs> you know, I think a big part of this whole thing in the end is even if we, as a people, say that we value certain things, the reality is that we don't. The reality in the end is that we value secularism more than we value religion for the most part. And uh, that shows up in very interesting places, usually in when it comes to compensation for different things. And then what happens in the way that people are treated and so on and so forth. And then they end up going like the for-profit route. And that just gets really messy. Like now the way that you're advertising, the way that you're marketing, that you choose certain things, you don't do other things. Like all of it just gets really, really, uh, it's not the way that the whole thing is supposed to go, you know. But Allah help us. In the end, you know, uh, in the end, at some level, like the person is, uh, people can study and they're required to teach, but they're not required to teach everyone for free all the time. They're not required to teach even for compensation. Like what I'm saying is that, like, a lot of the ulama in the past, they worked in very interesting places. Like they didn't always work in uh, being an imam. They didn't always work in being a judge. Some of them had independent businesses. Some of them had like little stores. Some of them had this, some of them had that. Yeah, maybe that means you can only spend five hours a week in the, in the service of the people. But you have your dignity. <laughs> now, then, then it's up to the people really. Like do you want to develop something that will allow the person to spend 40, 50 hours a week in the service of the people? Or do you want them to spend three, four hours in the service of the people? It's up to you really at that point, right? So these are, uh, these are just interesting things. And generally speaking, the people of Allah, and the people of knowledge who are like really sincere, they'll choose their dignity over, over anything else, right? Because it's going to, it affects the teaching and if it affects the teaching, then everything is lost. This, the dunya and the hereafter is lost. Okay, so, so seek compensation from Allah alone. As God states, O my people, I seek no riches from you for this message. My reward rests with none but God. For riches and all that this world comprises are there to serve the physical body. And the physical body is there to convey the soul. <coughs> uh, and its trusted mount. Knowledge renders service, for by it the soul attains a noble stature. So whoever uses knowledge to gain riches is like someone who wipes the soles of his shoes upon his face. Hmm. <coughs> in order to clean them, making that to which service is rendered into the servant and the servant into that to which service is rendered, which is an inversion of the intuitive reason. So, you know, generally we don't want to invert the scales of things. And I'll say that and drink the tea that said notice that Sheikh Fuad brought me, which is an inversion. <coughs> Nevertheless, regard carefully how the affair of the religion has ended up in the hands of a people who claim that their sole goal in pursuing the sciences of jurisprudence and theology and in teaching these two and other sciences is seeking to draw near to God. But then they expend wealth and use their standing, endure a variety of humiliations in the service of the sultans in order to keep remunerations flowing freely. And if they forsake these services, they would be forsaken and no one would look to them. <laughs> well, basically, huh? 
uh, isn't this like context wise? Uh, they have a lot of money and scholarship during the time of this album. Mm. So like people were pursuing it because it was a Yeah, it was like being a physician. Uh, He's we don't live in those times. We don't, yeah. We don't, yeah. You don't have the same dynamic. There was a lot more money in the scholarly world. It was like a pretty pretty easy route. You go into the thing, you finish your program, you get appointed to a position, you stay in favor with some of the people that are in power, you get some more money, you stay in their favor a little bit more, you get some more money, they'll give you gifts, they take care of you, this and that. It's a different system in some ways, maybe similar in some ways. Uh, in some place, in, in our context, it's not generally like that, for the most part, in the United States. But in other parts of the world, there there are still, um, you know, similar systems at some level. You know. <coughs> he says it is contemptible for any teacher to content himself with such circumstances. Uh, no, there's another one. There you go. Furthermore, these people expect the student to sustain the teacher at every turn of fate, to come to the aid of the teacher's supporters and treat his enemies with animosity and be like a donkey for all his requirements, be subservient before him and fulfill his request. Then, should the student fall short in his perceived obligation to his teacher, he will rise up against him and be the worst of his enemies. It is contemptible for any teacher to consent, content himself with such circumstances and find pleasure in it. And he should say, My sole goal in teaching is the dissemination of knowledge, seeking God's intimate proximity and the defense of his religion. Mark well all the indications that you might recognize the degrees of subtle deceptions. They say, look at all these things and pay attention because the deceptions can be subtle sometimes. You think you're doing something right and it's not really right. I was like, is that thing burning? I'm good. Okay. No Alhamdulillah. <laughs> All right. Check out these two sentences one after the other. You get confused when you hear the first one, you think it means something else, and then you see the second one. Ready? The third function of the teacher is n to not hold back anything from the guidance he provides the student. Okay? This means that the teacher should prevent the student from advancing to a level of knowledge that he is not prepared for, or undertaking the subtle points of a science before having mastered its fundamentals. <laughs> so what does it mean to not hold anything back from the student? Is to hold them back when they need to be held back. <laughs> That's interesting, right? Like you would think, you think, oh, they're just going to give them everything, then they should give them everything. No, that's not, that's not actually, that in, if you give them everything, you're holding them back. You're holding back from them. But if you hold back from them, you're giving them, in this case. So here, let the teacher call his attention to the fact that the true goal of the pursuit of knowledge is intimate proximity to God, and not positions of authority, prestige, or competition. And let him disparage as far as possible the existence of these traits in his student. For the damage the corrupt scholar causes is greater than the benefit he may render to others. Okay, so basically he's saying here is like, when they see the student has some issues, they shouldn't give them weapons, <laughs> right? They shouldn't give them like certain intellectual weapons and, and you know, they shouldn't do it. They have to be careful. Um, then, so then he goes on, he talks about, so then if he sees that the, the student is only seeking these, again, like Asnawi was saying, the circumstances are a little bit different, right? Although it, it still does come up sometimes, you know? They see that the student 
is seeking the type of knowledge just so that they can gain some sort of authority or power or whatever it might be. Um, then they, yeah. Can you say more? And louder. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we can understand the question so properly before it comments. So, uh, I guess um, my question is that can that be also used backwards, you know, and that uh, the teacher uh, indirectly without realizing, or realizing, I can't say, uh, you know, requests the students to kind of do favors, you know, XYZ, whatever favor that is, um, so that they are being taught, they're enhancing their knowledge right. by, by doing serving. these things. By yeah. Serving. I mean, I know that that exists, and uh, I'm, I'm not particularly fond of that <laughs> approach. <laughs> I think that um, if, if the teacher is asking the students to serve in some particular way on the premise that they're going to be learning from that, it shouldn't be connected to the teacher in any way. Like it, if they serve each other, fine, serve each other. If they serve other people, fine, serve other people. But it shouldn't be coming back to the teacher. That's, I mean... I'm sure there's some people that could like argue otherwise and I know there's things that existed historically maybe are a little bit different and so on and so forth but like I just think it's a really slippery route like a yeah but no like for example you're, you're a student so like you have to clean y you know you're my student so y in order for you to get your tarbiyah you need to do my laundry and you need to vacuum my house and you need to do the dishes and whenever I have guests you need to make the food for the guests and so on and so forth and like it's there's like a level of that that could be true and correct but it's just so slippery that it's like <laughs> it's it's so slippery on both sides um, that I, I personally don't really lean towards it nor do uh, my teachers lean towards those kind of things like they the you know they would generally say we're here to serve you not for you to serve us exactly. that's it that's the, that's the role of the teacher is to serve the student um, but again you know Allahu Adam I, I, I realize that you know uh, as you are being taught by a teacher and you're close to them you know you're learning uh, you yourself as a student you would serve them in certain capacities you know and uh, if it's you know getting whatever they may need or whatever right? but in terms of them actually requesting mm. I feel like I just said I feel like that, yeah. that may kind of you know, be a slippery slope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might do it out of your own initiative. 
right? Like, I love the person and I'm learning from them and I want to, like, make them some food or I want to help them with X, Y, or Z. But they'll never ask for it, nor will they ever blame you if it doesn't happen, nor will they ever... Like, there's no... It's like zero. <laughs> you know, there's no plus. It's like the Prophet them would never... Some narrations say he wouldn't praise or blame any food. It's just like, there's no... There's no comment on it, <laughs> right? Um, because it's just very slippery, very slippery. Um, yeah, yeah. So as a like a standard or your teachers or chefs, uh, like like Ali said, like as a student, like you want to like out of gratitude and graciousness. Do you guys just like? I mean, I, I don't know how it is in the religious context. Like, I know how it is in different professions. Do you guys, for the purpose to not get in that sticky grounds, just are like, no. Like, the, the things that you mentioned were all very personal, like laundry or cleaning or, you know, those kinds of things. But are there ways to show gratitude that are acceptable, that are okay, that are not on those sticky grounds? Yeah, of course. You can make dua for the person and do the things that they teach. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best gift you can give a teacher is to do what they say like to to act on the things that you learn from them you know that's the best gift you can give them that's the gift that they get in the hereafter inshallah if they were sincere if they weren't sincere then they have bigger things to worry about um but that's that's the best thing you can give them if there's things that come up and like it's not you know it's, it's just Things should be kind of natural, you know. Sometimes they just get a little bit overboard and a little bit exaggerated and stuff. Like, things should remain natural. Maybe it's like you go somewhere and you're like, I don't know, traveling and you see something and you're like, oh, so-and-so would like that and you get it for them just like you would get it for your friend or, you know, that's reasonable. But, um, you know, it's not good for the person too, sometimes for the teacher to like always be getting stuff. Um, and sometimes, especially if they're like really popular people, it get just gets to be too much stuff. <laughs> like one time, I was visiting a, a teacher while he was cleaning his house out, and uh, like half the stuff that he was getting rid of in terms of clothes and stuff, they still had the tags on them. It was like you can tell these are things people gave him. And he just doesn't have any use for it, so it's like. <laughs> if you want it, take it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but that's, you know, alhamdulillah. We should just, in the end, uh, like, sometimes we, we, we have so many emotions and we have so much goodwill and so on and so forth that things just get kind of weird. And, uh, you know, we want to keep things natural, inshallah. Religion should be natural. It should be should be free flowing. Should be easy going. Adab should be easy going. It shouldn't be like really. Uh, shouldn't be like tekeluf and everything. You know, I don't know how to. Shouldn't be like awkwardness and. Uh, oh my God! Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Is this was, like if 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 you're that worried about doing something wrong, then like you probably shouldn't be worrying about the person in the first place. It's like one of one of our teachers would say, like, if if you if you feel like the person who you consider to be your teacher doesn't have time to answer your questions or like 
your what you have on your mind is not important enough for you to ask them and all of these kind of things then you don't actually think that they're a teacher anyways because like if you really thought that they were a teacher in that way you would think that they're ready to give whatever they can <laughs> and you wouldn't think twice about it right otherwise you don't actually think that they're a teacher you just like you, you know you're hoping that you have this thing but it's not anyways third function third function of the teacher Oh, that's the one we just did. He also mentions here, though, this whole thing about how, like, sometimes the teacher might feel like the person is learning and they don't have necessarily the best of intentions, but they'll continue to teach them because the learning itself will be a purification for them. And uh, one of the early people, he uses the quote here, one of the early people said, we have pursued knowledge for other than the sake of God, but knowledge refused to be for other than God. Because they sought it for other reasons, and as they took it, it's like, you know, in the end, you just can't. That's the way this stuff goes. Sometimes it's just like, it's so powerful. It overcomes you. So it, sometimes there can be purification that. He says this is specifically also relates to the study of Quran and Hadith. It's like if you're studying how to debate and how to argue and all the opinions and all this kind of stuff, you can still end up with bad intentions. But if you're studying like Quran, you're studying Hadith, you're, it's close to the scripture. The scripture has a purifying effect, uh, generally is what he's getting at here. And there's multiple areas of study. You know, one of the things that I liked in uh, in Egypt, although most people don't like it, is that uh, in other places around the world too, like they, you know, like you can't, yeah, you know, like you can't study unless you're going to do tajweed, because tajweed is after prayer and stuff like one of the most oft-repeating obligations of your daily life is how to recite the Qur'an properly. And the person who doesn't know how to recite the Qur'an properly, they're sinful, according to like the books of, the books of that science. It doesn't have to mean you have to recite the whole Qur'an properly, but at least what you're praying with, you have to be able to recite it properly. So they make you start there. And it's horrible. Like it's, <laughs> it's really painful. <laughs> you're going to be on, especially with the, some of the Egyptian shiukh, they're like very particular. So you spend a long time on Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Spend a long time on Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And you just like keep going. And they'll just make you say it over and over. You don't even know what you're saying wrong. Because the ear hasn't actually attuned to the difference. Mm -hmm. And you just like repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And it hurts, but there's also like a level of humility in it. Like you just need to slow down. I know, we know you want to be Shaykh al-Islam. And right now you're going to have to study Tajweed. <laughs> and your Bismillah is not right. Again, <laughs> again, and you and oftentimes they won't even speak. You know, you make a mistake and they say, <laughs> <laughs> "You're like, <laughs> can you talk to me?" <laughs> With regard to the student who devotes himself or herself to the study of outright disagreement, disputation in theology, and familiarity with arcane subfields, and abandons the other sciences, these sciences that he studies engender nothing in their devotee save hardness of heart, unawareness of God, and tenacity in waywardness and striving for authority. So basically, like, there's some areas, they just make your heart hard. 
you do that fiqh is like that they say fiqh is a problem for the people who study fiqh because it's all this nitpicking all these particularities and it just does something to your brain it does something to your heart that's why that quote that we mentioned from before is uh, that's sometimes attributed to Imam Manik that the person who learns fiqh and they don't learn spirituality they become a corrupt person they just they have all the loopholes they have everything they become really harsh um that's why, you know, we always say that the studies have to be balanced out. Sufyana Thodi was seen in a state of sorrow. So someone asked, what is wrong with you? To which he responded, we have become shopkeepers for the sons of this low world. One of them devotes himself to us until he has acquired knowledge, then becomes an administrator of the state, a judge, or a treasurer of state funds. So basically what he's saying is like, the way to take government positions was to go through, because again, the whole educational system the foundation of it is in studying Islam. There's no way you can get into any other field of specialization until you study Islam in the beginning so that your mind is right, you understand the religion. So You're not going to become the treasurer unless you study Islam first. So he's saying, we became the shopkeepers of this world. They come to us and they study with us. And then afterwards, once they get enough knowledge, they go and they become the treasurer. They go and they take this other government position. Like they just use us, you know. We're just, ta we're just helping out with this world. We're not... What happened to like the real knowledge, you know? This is what he's saying. SubhanAllah. Different times. The fourth function of the teacher and among the most subtle of the art of teaching is deterring the student from reprehensible conduct by way of intimation to whatever extent possible. Okay. So... What he's getting at here is that the, the teacher sets the example and brings the, the student is there and they're learning and over time the example of the teacher and the subtlety of the teacher will take the person and elevate them from the next level to the next without them actually like harshly condemning them and correcting them and all this kind of stuff. So he says, uh, this should not be... The, uh, is deterring the student from reprehensible conduct by way of intimation to whatever extent possible. This should not be explicit criticism and should be by the way of clemency, not condemnation. For explicit criticism of reprehensible conduct rips aside the veil of reverence. It unleashes a response of arrogant self-defense and only provokes an increased desire to persevere in error. Right. So when you're kind of like harsh in the way that you correct someone, isn't that usually the response? They want to rebel. They want to do worse. Like, oh, you want me to do this? I'm going to do it even more, right? And he says, um, but the opposite of it is that correcting behavior by intimation also leads virtuous souls and bright minds to deduce its meanings. Thus, one benefits from the joy of comprehending its meaning by further yearning for knowledge of it. One then knows that this is not beyond the capacity of his intelligence. So this is a really interesting point. What he's saying is that uh, by not directly correcting the person, and just giving them the example that they should follow, then eventually if they're paying attention and they're a good person, eventually they're going to notice. And when they do notice, they realize that they have the capacity to notice and they have the capacity to understand themselves. And so they actually develop, um, they, you know, they know then it's not beyond their capacity to recognize these things, to realize these things. So basically, they're the teacher in teaching in this particular way 
gets the person to realize their own agency in the whole endeavor is that like eventually you get to a point where you understand you can figure it out yourself and uh, I've, I've known people like this as well that uh, generally like they won't tell you something if, y- if they think you can figure it out yourself and you might make they might watch you make a mistake and make a mistake and make a mistake and make a mistake and th- they could tell you you should fix this but if they just tell you you should fix this you won't like level up you'll just be at the same level and next time you'll be making a mistake and making a mistake and you won't fix it until they tell you but they're letting you make the mistake and then and then like eventually you figure it out and now it's like oh now i have a higher capacity to understand the thing that i'm doing wrong and and now they're standing on their own two feet in a sense this is not like uh intellectual knowledge this, this particular point is not really related to intellectual learning it's more of like a practical experiential learning The fifth function for the one responsible for certain sciences is not to criticize or disparage other fields of learning to his student. Okay. So, say for example, someone is a specialist in grammar and you go to them to study grammar. And they love grammar so much that they can't teach you grammar without hating on all the other fields of study. Right? They're saying this is wrong. Or they love fiqh so much that when you go to study fiqh with them, they make you think you never need to study aqidah. Or they love aqidah so much that they... so on and so forth. You get the idea. <coughs> Sixth function is to confine the student to the material that which is at the level of their comprehension. That's related to the one that came before it. Um, <coughs> the Prophet taught the idea of actually separating between people. I know it's really hard because we live in an anti-hierarchical existence in the West, in the current, especially people who went to college here in the modern period, in like this recent period. We really dislike hierarchy. We really, If you think about it, if there's not an understanding of the difference between people who know things and people who don't know things, regardless of the field, you have complete chaos. Complete chaos. You know, like, okay, no, you don't have any more right. Like the, the plumber comes in to clean to fix the toilet and I think I know better how to fix the toilet than he does because like who gives him a right to know more than me about toilets I we're equal in the understanding of toilets or the electrician <laughs> comes the guy that cleans the roof whatever it might be right so this idea of like no we're all equal and we all have the same uh, thing is just totally off and it messes up everything you, you can't it messes up all of life right so what he's saying is there are ranks to things and uh, at some level you teach at, th- at this level sometimes and sometimes you teach here and sometimes you teach here and sometimes like the person is not ready to go to this point so like they need to start here and uh, again this is I think a big challenge for people who are educated here because it's the opposite educational system it's like you just thrown in the deep end and figure it out you know uh, and, and you're also taught to have your own opinion on everything which is the opposite of the Islamic educational tradition. <laughs> the Islamic educational model is not that you're supposed to have an opinion on everything. You can have an opinion later, once you paid your dues. But you have no right to an opinion in the beginning. In the beginning, all you have is to listen to the people who came before you. And again, like it goes contrary to our Western educational model for most people, so they have it's difficult. It's not saying you can't eventually have your own opinion. You just have your own opinion when you deserve to have one. You know, it's like you sit in these classes in college and you, you, you know, you take one class and they're like, 
they want a critical essay that like looks at this and that and critiques this person's opinion and so on and so forth. I'm like, I didn't even do the reading in the class. I'm going to write an essay <laughs> critiquing, critiquing the person who like founded the field. I mean, eventually maybe, but <laughs> they say it's an exercise. I understand. It's like an exercise, you know. But I'm not sure that people realize that this is just an exercise. <laughs> like your opinion is not actually the point here. The point is that you're exercising the idea of criticism and so on and so forth. Then everyone graduates, they think they deserve an opinion. <coughs> the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, No one speaks to a people on a matter that their intellects cannot grasp without that causing trial and tribulation among some of them. This was the Prophet them said this, right? And there's other uh, variations on this. Like, do you want to um, do you want to sp do you want to tell people things and they reject Allah and His Messenger? Like, speak to them at a way that they understand, because if they don't understand it, they're going to just reject it. So there's a, a you know, Ali radiAllahu anhu pointed to his chest, saying, "Verily, there is extensive knowledge here. If only I could find those to bear its burden." Radiallahu <laughs> an, Subhanallah. He spoke truly in this For the hearts of the upright are the graves of the mysteries Sudur al-Ahrar, Qubur al-Asrar The hearts of the upright are the graves of the mysteries It is therefore inappropriate for the scholar To disclose everything he knows to everyone <coughs> Jesus salam, said Do not hang precious stones around the necks of swine for surely wisdom is more precious than jewels, and whoever has an aversion to wisdom is worse than swine. You know, like you don't... One of our teachers one time when we were studying Arabic and we tried to like have an opinion on poetry or something, and he was like... <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said, كَيْفَ نُقَدِّمُ apple pie إِلَى حِمَارِ How does one present apple pie to a donkey? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you guys don't understand what you're saying in the first place. What do you know? You don't know poetry to have an opinion on poetry. <laughs> and he was right. They were just, you know, being people who went to universities that are supposedly the best in the world. Thus it has been said, measure everyone according to the standard of his intellect and weigh him in the scales of his comprehension so that you may secure him from harm and that he benefit from you, lest animosity be arise due to differing standards. So you, again, this whole idea of paying attention. <coughs> the seventh function of the teacher, I think this is the end of it, yeah. The seventh function of the teacher is to teach the poorly prepared student the clear and evident aspects of the sciences that befit him and not mention to him that beyond this there are minutiae that he is keeping hidden from him. Keeping hidden from him. <coughs> so, basically what he's saying is that like sometimes someone is not going to go far in their learning. And if they're not going to, then you just teach them the basics and you don't tell them there's all these other things. Because if you tell them there's all these other things, then they're gonna lose their desire to learn. They'll be like, forget it. I'm not even gonna learn the, I'm not even gonna learn the basics now. It's an interesting point. It's overwhelming, it's overwhelming them. Yeah. So they give up. 
such an interesting point, right? I, I think I do that every week. Stuff for a while. <laughs> he says, for that information would weaken his resolve toward mastering the basics and bewilder his heart. It would make him imagine that his teacher is acting in a miserly fashion toward him. For everyone imagines himself capable of acquiring the entirety of the minutia of every science. There is not a single soul who is not content with God for the flawless intellect he has been given. <laughs> While in fact the greatest fools among them and those of the feeblest intellect are the ones most pleased with their flawless intellects. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <coughs> so you know so there's a there's like a time and place for everything if you're uh, like if you're in a class where you're teaching there's certain levels of information you can go into that you're not going to go into in like a khutbah it's not what the people are looking for or in like a khatira after salah or something like that it's not the same place the eighth function of the teacher is to apply his knowledge. Otherwise his deeds belie his words, for knowledge is grasped by inner perception while works are grasped by eyesight. Those who have eyes are numerous, so one's works that contradict one's knowledge preclude guidance. <coughs> so basically, you know, they should do the things that they teach. For this reason, the burden, and this is, you know, part of the whole, we, you know, we say like, uh, we have to remember that our teachers and our religious teachers and so on, they're human beings too, and they make mistakes too, and so on and so forth. That's true, but like, we shouldn't take that thing too far, in the sense that people make mistakes and stuff, that's true, but certain mistakes are just, you know, not acceptable, and... Uh, for this reason, he says, for this reason, the burden the scholar bears to shun disobedience is of greater consequence than the burden of an uneducated person. For his iniquities will lead multitudes astray, for they take him as their example. The Prophet ﷺ said, if someone initiates an evil practice, he will bear its burden and the burden of whoever practices it. For this reason, Sayyidina Ali stated, two men have broken my back, a shameless scholar and a devout fool. The uneducated servant deceives people with his pious behavior, while the shameless scholar drives them away from piety and religion by his reprehensible conduct. And Allah knows best. Ya Sattar. We'll stop here, inshallah. And then uh, go to the next book. Next section is the perils. Uh, next section is an elucidation of the traits of the scholars of the hereafter and of the reprehensible scholars. So it's like fire section. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alayhi wa sallam.